Welcome to Life Source Church. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes or SoundCloud. Today you're going to hear a message from Pastor Walt that we hope encourages you. How great is our God, and that all the world will see is talking about. And just to give you a little insight here, the Bible talks about that we ought to glorify God. And so what does it mean to glorify God? That sounds like some religious word, right? Glorify God. Well, here's the deal. Everything about God is glorious. And that idea of glorious means really weighty, really big, awesome, important, perfect. He's, everything about him is glorious. And so here's the deal. When I let God have his way in my life, and he, he could force me to do that, couldn't he? He could force you to do that, but he doesn't. But when I cooperate with him and I let him fill my life, what happens is that becomes seen by other people. And so when, when people see my life is different and I've changed how I think and, and how I'm living, that gets seen by people. And what they're seeing is God. And when they see God, they also see his glory. And so we glorify God by allowing him to be seen in our lives. That'll preach, won't it? But that's not the sermon today. It's good to see all of you today, and I, I uh, you know, want to let you know, in case you have forgotten, that Thanksgiving is this Thursday. Anybody forgotten? No. And so, I was thinking in my, here, I, I, for the last few months I've been thinking, I need to go on a diet before the holidays start. <laughs> Oh, you said you just said to change the scale. Yeah, no, that doesn't work. But uh, so um, I didn't make it. Okay, but here we come on Thanksgiving to Christmas, right? And then even to the New Year's. I mean, it's a. Well, I t- let's just all go on diets starting Friday, <laughs> right? The day after Thanksgiving, do that. But anyway, serious, uh, uh, on um, this idea of dieting. You know, way over half of Americans seriously go on a diet every year in January. Statistics show that, okay? And here's what the statistics show is that within, out of every five people who do this, by the time the first week goes by, two have already quit. (laughs) A third one has quit by the end of a month, before the first month comes up, that's three. And uh, only one out of the five will make it past three months. And so the weight that intended to get lost didn't get lost, did it? Um, And and so the diets don't work because there's not a sustaining of it, right? So I'm not preaching on diets today either, thank goodness. (laughs) But... um, the idea is you have to persevere in it, right? You have to stick with it. And, you know, diets are relatively easy on the first day, relatively. Second day, right? And then all of a sudden it's, hey. And, and what I, you know, to be plead is I get up one day and I eat and because I forgot I was on the diet. Anybody else ever forget you're on? Okay. Might be convenient. But the idea is that needing to sustain that and, uh, for it to accomplish what it's intended to accomplish. And, and 
the same thing that, that can happen in lots of areas of life. I mean, think in a diet, if, if you're gonna sustain it, you have to pay attention to what? Pretty much every day. And after a week, two weeks, three weeks, a month, two months, three months, I have sustained diets for six months before, but the point is, you have to really pay attention, don't you? Because it gets easy not to. You know, because the longer something goes, sometimes the harder it is to keep it going. Because you have this momentum in the beginning and then you kind of lose the momentum and it's easy to forget. And so the same is true with this mission that the Lord has given us. You know, the, the church throughout the ages has had times when we really did well on it because you focus on it and you work on it. And then over time though, you lose the focus, right? And then you, it, it just kind of slips away. Even in our church, I would say, if we, could, we wanted to sit down and actually look at our history of our church, we could see some times when we really, really were focusing on the mission. And, and, but then what happens over time, you know, you get busy and you're doing this, and then all of a sudden you're, you're focusing on what, you know, all this stuff we're doing, and we've lost sight of the mission, and it affects how we make our decisions or don't make our decisions. And so the mission is something that we really, really have to keep after. Um, I think that what we're gonna see today is not just that fact. I mean, if we ask that fact, right, are we supposed to keep after the mission? Are we supposed to keep doing it, right? We would all say what? Yes, that's, that's the easy one, isn't it? So the harder problem is where do we, how do we find the motivation? to stay motivated and to um, keep carrying out the mission. So I think we'll see some things about that today. We've been looking at this idea of the mission that, and whose mission is it? It's the church's mission, isn't it? It's also our mission and it's my mission, okay? And so to, to really look at this, we've been focusing in on Paul's mission. This, the three missionary journeys that Paul took. We saw the first missionary journey. We find this framework for Christian missions. The second missionary journey. Uh, okay, that's, that's fine, Mitchell. Go ahead and go to the, back to the first one, if you would. Um, the first, uh, no, actually go to the first one. There you go. First journey, provide a framework for missions. And this is the idea of go and tell and then return and report. That's what they did, okay? More details than that, but they go and tell and return and report. And our responsibility is to pray for those missionaries and to support them, be supportive of them, and help to sustain them as they're on the field. So this is kind of just the, the big picture plan. All right, second missionary journey, we really focused in on the spiritual nature of missions. That we're talking about a supernatural life for us as Christians if we're gonna live out the mission, certainly for the missionaries as well. And then we talked about the power of the gospel, how the gospel has to always be central to the mission, and then we talked last week about learning to live on the front lines, okay? We need to be out there on the mission, not hanging out someplace where it's a lot easier at the moment, okay? Be out on the front lines. And then that brings us, today we're gonna start on the third uh, missionary journey, and this is where we really see an endure, the enduring importance and the impact of missions. The mission still matters and we need to go all in on it, okay? And so today we're talking about the church's mission, our mission, my mission, but specifically, well, let's, let's look at the scriptures here. Let's go to Acts 19. We'll start in on it right away. 
Because the mission still matters, right? The mission's still important today. Do you agree with that? Amen. All right. Will it be important tomorrow? Yes. Next year? Yes. Ten years from now, if we're still here and the Lord is here, you know, has us here? Yeah, it's still going to, the mission is still important. The Apostle Paul kept on the mission. Our missionaries do the same. And so why? It's because the mission is just as important today as it was when it started at the time of Christ. All right, so back in chapter 18, a few verses back, it, the, really this, the start of this missionary journey doesn't have a big statement about it. In fact, it's actually found in the second half of verse 23. Paul says, okay, going back out, and he heads back out to the churches he'd already been to on the way to other places. And so we see uh, some of the other places, or the other place that he gets to. Chapter 19, verse 1, page 1278 in the Bible that's in the chairs there. And it says, and it happened while Apollos was at Corinth that Paul, having passed through the upper regions, came to Ephesus. And this is in uh, modern day Turkey. It's on the west coast of Turkey. And finding some disciples, he said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? They said to him, we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. So something about these disciples, you know, they were followers of the Messiah. Uh, but we're going to see specifically more what they knew or didn't know. But something about them made Paul question, you know, something is just off here. Something isn't quite right. And so he asked them, did you receive the Holy Spirit? Because a little doctrine for you. The moment a person comes to that place where they, you know, they turn away from their sin and their own way of trying to be right with God and they say, okay, God, I get it. I'm a sinner. I believe Jesus died for me, rose again, and I receive him as my savior. The moment that happens and they are born again, the Holy Spirit moves in. The Holy Spirit comes to reside in a person. That's when I usually say God moves in. That's how that happened. The Holy Spirit comes in. And so the Apostle Paul is trying to ascertain, you know, do these people just have an intellectual belief or a commitment to something? Or has something happened deep down inside them that God has done? Are they genuinely saved would be another way we might ask the question. And their response is, we have not so much as heard whether there is a Holy Spirit. We don't know what you're talking about. What do you mean? Well, that told Paul right away some things, right? That they didn't have a full understanding of what God was doing in the gospel. Verse 3, and he said to them, well, into what then were you baptized? So they said, into John's baptism. All right, so now we're back to John the Baptist. So just, you know, here's, here's what's going on. Is that there were followers of God, Jewish followers of God, who... who um, wanted to do what God wanted them to do, but John the Baptist came along preaching this message of repentance, preparing yourself, the Messiah is coming, right? Get your hearts right, he's coming. And uh, there were people who were his followers listening to his message who bought into that message, believed it, and then went other places in the world to share it. They became like missionaries of that message. And so that's who these guys are. And so they left before Jesus showed up publicly. They don't know about Jesus. Verse four, Paul talks about this. Then Paul said, John indeed baptized with a baptism of repentance, saying to the people that they should believe on him who would come after him, that is on Christ Jesus. Okay, we've identified the Messiah, Jesus. 
Verse five, when they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. So they, they, now they understand the rest of the message. Now they believe in Jesus. And when Paul had laid hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them and they spoke with tongues and prophesied. They spoke with languages they had never learned. And so God was making it very clear here to Paul that what had been missing has now happened because the same thing that happened to the disciples that day when the Holy Spirit entered the church happens to these guys. And, and these kinds of signs, uh, the Bible tells us, were for the Jewish people to help them know that this was God's hand. And so here Paul says, wow, okay, so these guys have genuinely been saved. Verse seven. Now the men were about 12 in all. Now before I go any farther, were these men religious people? Were they? Not a trick question. I know I asked trick questions. So this isn't one of them. They were followers of, of John the Baptist. They believed the scriptures. They looked for the Messiah. Who was going, yeah, they were very definitely religious people. Did they have a personal relationship with the Lord? Were they saved? Were they born again? No, they weren't. So it's very possible for a religious person to hold many right beliefs but not have a relationship with God through Christ. That is a possibility. All right, let's continue. Verse eight, and he, Paul, went into the synagogue and spoke boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading concerning the things of the kingdom of God. But when some were hardened and did not believe, but spoke evil of the way, and the way is often how uh, Christians were referred to at that time, followers of the way, which is, you know, kind of cool. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth and the life. He says, but they spoke evil of the way before the multitude. He departed from them and withdrew the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. So he found a place, a school in, in Ephesus where he could continue to teach, preach, and make disciples. And so he was doing that every day. Verse 10, and this continued for two years so that all who dwelt in Asia heard the word of the Lord Jesus, both Jews and Greeks. And so uh, this ministry is so effective, he's teaching people here in Ephesus who in the, the normal course of their lives or who on purpose went out from Ephesus into the towns around. Okay, and, and it, it became known, people heard about the Lord. This would be very much like us, um, well, here we are, you know, every week we're teaching and preaching and in the midweek we do other things to train and equip people. The idea would be that when you leave here, you go out there somewhere. How many of you are from Worcester? Okay, you go out to Worcester. How many of you are from Spencer? Okay, how many from Leicester? How many from Auburn? How many from farther down the road, down there south on 146? Okay. Uh, how many from up uh, Holden Way, Paxton Way, right? How many from out Sturbridge, Southbridge Way, right? The whole contingent over here. Anybody out like North Brookfield, the Brookfields, or? Okay, wherever, have I, have I missed anybody? Who have I missed? Anybody? All right, but the idea is this, is that what needs to be happening is that we go out from here and where we go in life that we are carrying out the mission. We are you know, surrendering the Lord, growing and telling about the Lord so that more and more people out there know about Jesus, right? That's what they were doing here, 
okay? And so why not us? That seems like it's the same thing we ought to be doing if we're on the mission, okay? All right, so what we see here is this, that the mission is still important. The mission is still important because there are still religious and non-religious people who need a relationship with Christ. Go ahead and go to that slide if you would, Mitchell. There are still religious and non-religious people who need a relationship with Christ. Now, I put in parentheses and non-religious people because we know that's true. But the story here we see is what? It's religious people, isn't it? And I would venture to say that you know religious people who do not know Jesus. People who are in religions that would be called Christian, but they do not know Jesus. They might know lots of right things, but they've never come to that point where they personally received him as Savior. Let me just be real clear on this, okay? We're talking about, and, and most of you know, but maybe some of you don't, and those who are listening may not uh, understand this. Um, being a Christian is not an intellectual exercise, though there are lots of intellectual things you need to you know, know and understand and grow in, and that's awesome and great. But it's not just that. It's not holding a specific set of beliefs. It's not just that. Uh, it's not doing good works, although Christians ought to do good works. It isn't any of that kind of stuff. That you don't, that's not how it starts, I should say. The way it starts is when we realize that we have sinned against a holy God. I have sinned repeatedly against a holy God. And when I, you know, that's a, if that was all we knew, that's a scary place to be, isn't it? Because I'm guilty of sinning against a holy God. Who will judge for sin? Well, he did judge for sin. And the way God judged for sin is he sent his only son into the world, Jesus, who lived a sinless life. But as he died, he paid the penalty for my sin, the penalty for your sins, the penalty for the sins of the whole world. God judged my sin and your sin when Jesus died for us. And then he rose again from the dead, as the, the Bible tells us. Then what has to happen is I, I need to understand that. I realize that I've sinned. God has made this provision for me and I have to make a decision. I can hang on to my own life. I can hang on to my own way of dealing with this, my own good works or my own thought process, my own ideas how it all can work. Or I can do really what the first step here is to surrender and say, okay, God, I turn away from my life to you. I believe Jesus died for my sins, rose again. And right now, I receive him as my savior. I put my faith in him to provide me for the forgiveness I can never earn for myself. I receive Jesus as savior. And when that is a sincere decision of a person's heart and mind, that what happens? The Bible tells us that God forgives how many sins? All sins, every sin ever committed, ever will become. Jesus died for them all, all right? And then that also means that our eternal destiny is no longer hell, but now it is heaven. And it's settled because Jesus, it was paid in full. Jesus hangs on the cross and says, it is finished, payment in full. That's right. And, and then God himself moves in. And that's what we see Paul talking about with these uh, uh, disciples of John the Baptist. Right? God himself moved in, the Holy Spirit came in. And so, how many people, uh, well, let me ask you this, how many of you think, yeah, I think I know someone who's religious like that, but really has never received Christ as Savior? How many of you say, I know somebody like that? Yeah, see? So guess what? The mission is still important, isn't it? 
Because those people that, you know, oftentimes well-intended are not saved. They don't have a relationship with Christ. They need someone to care and, and press into their lives and help them to learn that and understand it. And who are those people? It's us. Okay. And this is not just here. This is around the world, too. There are countries that would say they are Christian countries who are filled with religious people who do not know Jesus. Okay. And so the mission still matters. The mission is still important. All right, let's go to, let's continue in the story here. Verse 11. It's an interesting passage of scripture. It says, now God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul. Does that sound a little redundant? Are miracles usual? No, they're what? Unusual. unusual. That's right. But it says here that God worked unusual miracles by the hands of Paul. And we're going to see what he means by that. It says, verse 12, so that even handkerchiefs or aprons were brought from his body to the sick and the diseases left them and the evil spirits went out of them. Now, uh, that's an unusual miracle, isn't it? You know, I, I, keep, I have this thought. I mean, you know, God does, it's no problem for God to do these things, right? In other words, they had been with the Apostle Paul. He had wore this apron. Maybe, well, he was making tents. It was his working apron. And, and I, I, I can imagine Paul coming out and saying, anybody see my apron? That's like the 12th one I've lost this month. I, <laughs> right? It's out there. But so God is doing miracles, and he's showing the power of God and, um, and, and in the name of Jesus, certainly here. Verse 13. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists, those who were involved with trying to cast out evil spirits who were not Christians, the Jewish exorcists, took it upon themselves to call the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, we exorcise you by the Jesus, or by Jesus whom Paul preaches. So they thought the magic was in saying the name. Is the name of Jesus powerful? It absolutely is. But if we ever think that we got this little formula where if we'll just say, in the name of Jesus, that somehow there's power attached, not so, right? It has to be matched from all the way through, right? The name of Jesus needs to match everything that's coming from the person. All right, so they said, let's use the name of Jesus. They tried that, and then we get a specific story. It says, also there were seven sons of Siva, a Jewish chief priest who did so, and the evil spirit I'm sorry, I started to laugh. It's, it's funny, but it's not funny. And the evil spirit answered and said, Jesus I know, and Paul I know, but who are you? See, they didn't have a relationship with God. They weren't a disciple being trained by Paul. And so, says verse 16, then the man in whom the evil spirit was leaped on them, overpowered them, and prevailed against them so that they fled out of that house naked and wounded. Um, I just saw an article about the Beverly Hillbillies yesterday. These guys got a big whooping, didn't they? Okay. Uh, they're messing around with spiritual things. They don't have an understanding of what's going on. Um, in our day and age, it's harder for us to see it in our culture and how Satan works. We don't see it, but we do know from the scripture certainly in the time of Christ in the New Testament, and I would say it still happens in some ways today that we don't, aren't aware of, but there are people who end up with demonic, they're demonically possessed. In other words, they have demons who come into their lives and 
really just eventually destroy those lives. It does happen. And so trying to just use the name of Jesus wouldn't do it. It had to be actually Christ himself involved, and you can't just grab his name and, and uh, use it like that. Anyway, so the fact that this happened, they, they tried to use the name of Jesus, and it did not work, and yet they've seen and that the, the name of Jesus is very, very powerful. Verse 17, this became known both to all Jews and Greeks dwelling in Ephesus, and fear fell on them all. And the name of Jesus was magnified. And many who had believed came confessing and telling their deeds. So it got people's attention, didn't it? All right, verse 19. Also, many of those who had practiced magic, and we're not talking about sleight of hand magic. We're talking about um, curses and, and incantation spells and, and items to use, all this kind of stuff. What we would call the occult. Okay, And many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted up the value of them in a total of 50,000 pieces of silver. Now that, that's a lot of silver, isn't it? This was referring to the, the coin of the time called the drachma. And depending on you know, which way you go with that, a, a, an unskilled laborer, just a plain laborer, his daily wages would have been like half a drachma, okay? A skilled laborer, his day's wages would be like twice that. He'd get the drachma, the one coin. We have 50,000 of them here. And when you figure out what a day's wages is, we're talking about three to six million dollars worth of these things. It's a lot of money, isn't it? Anybody use that money today if I could give it to you? Put it on your bills as far as it would go, right? Um, so this is significant. People turning to the Lord and turning away from the occult, turning away from the work of Satan in their lives. Verse 20, so the word of the Lord grew mightily and prevailed. And so we're talking about the mission is still important. The second reason that we see this here is that there are still many people who need to be delivered from Satan's control over their lives. Satan's control over their lives. You know, we, like I said, in our culture, we don't always think of it this way, but it's there. And it doesn't have to be possession for Satan to be influencing and exercising some control in your life. Uh, the Apostle Paul, in, in his uh, second letter to Timothy, talks about, that describes it as the snare of the devil, having been taken captive by him to do his will. Well, how does he do that? Let's just take a few minutes here today and, and talk about how does Satan do these things? Because he does it in the lives of non-Christians, but he also works in the lives of Christians. And we need to see and understand this. So how does Satan control people? Well, Jesus describes uh, Satan in John chapter 8, verse 44. He says, the devil was a murderer from the beginning. He is a liar and the father of it. He murdered Adam and Eve in the sense he, he, he did what? Their, their spiritual life? They died, didn't they? He's a destroyer. And, and he does it by being a liar. He is a deceiver. That is Satan's biggest weapon against people, is deception. It's not his, somehow rather, this magic power over people. That isn't it. And, and what happens when somebody actually has the demonic in them is because they have reached a point where they have believed the lie, believed the lie, acted on the lie, acted on the lie until they just open themselves up. 
okay? And then that's where the more direct control would come in. But so it's the idea of deception and lying. And so the unsaved, this, is, this goes back to the, what Paul was saying to Timothy there. He says, so that they may know the truth. Yeah, go ahead and move to that if you would there, Mitchell. So that they may know the truth and that they may come to their senses and escape the snare of the devil. Do you feel like you know anybody in your life who when you think about it, they have wrong beliefs about Jesus? Wrong beliefs about what it takes to have your sins forgiven? Wrong beliefs about what it's gonna take to make it to heaven? Yeah? Do you understand that what needs to happen is they need to come to their senses and believe the truth, see? And Satan is gonna do everything he can to keep the truth away from them. So, as I think of the people that I have some sort of relationship with, they need to know this truth. Satan wants to keep it away from them. What do you think probably the biggest way he's gonna to try to do that is? Get me to keep my mouth shut, right? Get me not to witness, to, to get me, uh, we'll, we'll see some more things, but get me busy, to get me distracted, whatever. So they, we have to help people to know the truth. So he lies and deceives us. He, he brings destruction into life and distraction. And for even us as Christians, the author of Hebrews in chapter three warns us, he says, but exhort one another daily, why it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the what? Deceitfulness of sin. And so we let sin into our lives and we're being deceived that somehow or other this is okay or we know it's not okay, but something. And it can harden us. And as we get hardened, hardened Christians do not pay close attention to the mission. Hardened Christians don't feel compassion for this person who's in front of them, see? And so Satan wants us to be involved in sin and the deceitfulness of us. And he also wants to distract us. And in Mark chapter four, Jesus talks about this. He says, in the cares of this world, the deceitfulness of riches and the desires for other things entering in choke the word and it becomes unfruitful. And so again, you and I can get so caught up in the business of life and the busyness of life that we're no longer doing the surrender grow part and as that stops, then the tell part goes away too, okay? So we really need to not get distracted. So how does Christ deliver us from these things? Uh, in Colossians chapter one, it, it talks about, it. it says, he has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the son of his love, in whom we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins. Delivered us from the power of darkness. The, the words that's translated, uh, delivered us from and conveyed us, that's the word, conveyed us, is the same kind of word that we would use Talking about translating. Now, I know a little bit about translating and, and I don't know how many of you saw, some of you do, some of you don't know, is that, that my youngest daughter got engaged yesterday to a guy who speaks Portuguese. <laughs> there in Portugal where she is, he's a great guy, uh, he has a great reputation, we're really happy and pleased with it. But we spent 10 days there trying to communicate. And I think he does a great job of English, 
Uh, I mean, he certainly does a much better job of English than I do of Portuguese. Um, but I guess we exhausted him. We wore him out. Because the whole time he's trying to think in English and trying to talk in English. And, and he really did well. But I mean, you know what I mean? But this idea of translating, right? It's, okay, this is what, how I would see, say, he's thinking, this is how I would say in Portuguese. I need to say now, how would I say that? Take the same thought and translate it into English. Okay, well, what has happened, the Bible tells us here, is that Jesus took us in, the, we were under the power of darkness. We didn't know the Lord and the power of darkness, and he translated us. He took us and translated us into the kingdom of light. Wow, that's a good place to be. Much better than the kingdom of darkness. So he's actually moved us over. That is the reality. We don't have to let Satan have control of our lives anymore. Uh, and then know this, that God is working in our lives. Philippians 1, 6, 6 says, being confident of this very thing, that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it to the day of Jesus Christ. And so if we will cooperate with him in that, we can be delivered from the power of Satan in our lives, okay? And so all of this is about making disciples. All of this is about reaching people who don't know Jesus with the gospel and, and uh, sharing the truth of him, helping them to see it. The Holy Spirit will work. It's also for us as Christians, learning not to be deceived, learning to believe the truth, learning to act on those things. It's all about making disciples, isn't it? And so how do people get free from Satan's control of their lives? When we and churches like us and missionaries carry out the mission, we're making disciples, right? We're doing what? We're teaching them to observe all the things the Lord commands, the truth. The truth, which is what will set them free. Isn't that what Jesus said? You would know the truth, and the truth will set you free. Okay, so let's continue here. Verse 23. Actually, let's start in verse 21. When these things were accomplished, Paul purposed in the spirit when he had passed through Macedonia and Achaia to go to Jerusalem saying, after I've been there, I must also see Rome. So he sent into Macedonia two of those who ministered to him, Timothy and Erastus, but he himself stayed in Asia for a time. So he's sending them ahead to get things ready for when he came. But he stays in Asia, which is there in Ephesus. Verse 23, and about that time there arose a great commotion about the way. For a certain man named Demetrius, a silversmith who made silver shrines of Diana, brought no small profit to the craftsmen. Now, before we go any farther, just up above, what do we read happen? People who were getting saved were doing what? Burning their, anything that they had related to the occult. And you suppose they stopped buying things related to the worship of? Yeah, they did. Well, guess what? Somebody's pocketbook's getting hurt. He, so they brought no small profit to the, to the craftsmen. So Diana, uh, I don't want to go great length on this, but she was the, uh, a god that was worshipped in a very uh, big way in Ephesus. Uh, they believed that an idol, uh, an image had fallen down from heaven. Maybe it was a meteorite or maybe it was made up, but that, that was an image that they worshipped as Diana. And uh, go to that, that picture if you would, Mitchell. Uh, this is an artist's rendering of what they think the Temple of Diana looked like. It was known as one of the seven wonders of the world, of the ancient world, okay? Just an amazing place, big deal. And, and these guys made a lot of money because people came from all over the world to worship here, okay? And so they would sell things related to that. 
Okay, so let's read on. Verse 26. Moreover, this is the, the silversmith talking. Actually, verse 25. He called them together, the other workers, with the workers of similar occupation, said, Men, you know that we have our prosperity by this trade. Moreover, you see and hear that not only at Ephesus, but throughout almost all Asia, this Paul has persuaded and turned away many people, saying that they are not gods which are made with hands. So not only is this trade of ours in danger of falling into disrepute, but also the temple, and he probably said this with hushed tones, but also the temple of the great goddess Diana may be despised and her magnificence destroyed, whom all Asia and the world worship. He's stirring up the crowd. Verse 25, now when they heard this, they were full of wrath and cried out saying, great is Diana of the Ephesians, great is Diana of the Ephesians. You ever seen like on TV crowds like this? You know, chanting and yelling. So the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater. And by one account, they think this theater would have held over 20,000 people. It's a big theater. Um, they rushed into the theater with one accord, having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul's travel companions. So they grabbed two of these Christians that they had seen with Paul. And when Paul wanted to go into the people, the disciples would not allow him. Good idea, right? <laughs> no way, Paul. But I got to go in. No, Paul. You don't understand. I got to. No, Paul. We are not letting you in there. You're only going to make things worse at this point. Then some of the officials of Asia who were his friends sent to him pleading that he would not venture into theater. Don't go in, Paul, please. So he didn't. Some therefore cried one thing in the theater there and some another for the assembly was confused and most of them did not know why they had come together. So I get this picture. They're in the theater and they're, you know, great is the goddess Diana, you know, God of the Ephesians Diana, great is God. Why are we doing this? I don't know. Great is the goddess. You don't know? No. Do you know? No. They didn't know. It was just a big riot happening. All right. Verse 33. And they drew Alexander out of the multitude, the Jews putting him forward. And Alexander motioned with his hand, wanted to make his defense. What's, what's up with that? What's the Jews got to do this? Well, I think the Jews were concerned because where does Paul? Paul is connected to the Jews, isn't he, in their mind, right? He, he preached to the Jews. He's Jewish, they thought. And so Alexander wants to stand representing the Jews and let them know, listen, what that Paul is teaching, that's not us, right? But they, it didn't matter because the crowd connected them all together. But verse 34, but when they found out that he was a Jew, all with one voice cried out for about two hours, great is Diana of the Ephesians. Two hours. Wow. And when the city clerk had quieted the crowd, he said, men of Ephesus, what man is there who does not know that the city of Ephesians is temple guardian of the great goddess Diana and of the image which fell down from Zeus? Therefore, since these things cannot be denied, you ought to be quiet and do nothing rashly. For you have brought these men here who are neither robbers of temples nor blasphemers of your goddess. Therefore, if Demetrius and his fellow craftsmen have a case against anyone, the courts are open and there are proconsuls, some to judge. Let them bring charges against one another. But if you have any other inquiry to make, it shall be determined in the lawful assembly. For we are in danger of being called in question for day, today's uproar. There being no reason which we may give to account for this disorderly gathering. And when he had said these things, he dismissed the assembly. In other words, if word got out that, that uh, is, if Ephesus was out of control, chaos, rioting, the Romans very well could have come back in and applied 
you know, not pleasant measures. So he said, we've got to stop. Verse, chapter 20, verse 1, after the uproar had ceased, Paul called the disciples himself, embraced them, and departed to go to Macedonia. So he's going to move on down the road. But we see here a third reason that the mission is still important. And that's because there are still many people deceived and confused by false beliefs and religions. That sounds all like the first one, doesn't it? But I'm thinking here, the first one, the idea of religious people is more about people who would think they're Christian, but aren't. This is beyond that. And there are some really strange beliefs out there. Have you run anybody who holds any strange beliefs? And there are people who are confused about things and they believe things that aren't even logical. On and on it goes. Because here's the plight of people who are deceived and confused. Uh, The Apostle Paul describes it this way in his second letter to the Corinthians. He says, our gospel is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age, talking about Satan, has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ should shine on them. So they they don't know, they're they're blinded, they don't understand, they're caught up in things that aren't true and that, that are even confusing and don't make sense. They need the light of the gospel, don't they? They need the light of the gospel in our lives. They need the light of the gospel from our mouths and not just here, but around the world where our missionaries are. They need that. And then the fourth point here, let's just go back and look at verse 29. So the whole city was filled with confusion and rushed into the theater with one accord, having seized Gaius and Aristarchus, Macedonians, Paul's travel companions, and when Paul wanted to go into the people, the disciples would not allow him. Gaius, Aristarchus, Paul, missionaries who are on the front lines, okay? And so another reason missions is still important is because there are still missionaries at risk on the front lines who need our support. They're out there. I don't know how many of you saw, I posted on our prayer uh, Facebook page uh, from the Lyles down in Peru, who we had prayed for recently uh, in church and, and seen God work. Uh, one of their church members' sons was taking his child to school and somehow or other he got murdered. So this is very close to David Lyles and their church and what's going on. And he just kind of hinted at it, but that they live in a dangerous place. That kind of stuff happens here, yes. It kind of happens in other parts of the world a lot more. And we have missionaries who are out there. They're, they are physically at risk. They are mentally, emotionally at risk. They are they're financially at risk. I mean, we say at risk, right? I mean, God can provide. But the, the, the dangers are real. And so the mission is still important. And that means that we need to be supporting them, right? We need to be praying for them. And being supportive of them. Let me show you. Here's a list of the missionaries that we currently support. This means we send them money every month. Uh, the missionaries, the, their countries are where they are in blue. Over here on this side, we have some Bible colleges and new churches, which that's just into a generic fund to help new churches. Uh, the missions office is a, a small amount of money we send to help offset the costs for our missionaries through the office. So expenses. But here's what I want you to see is all the ones in black um, over 20 years we've been supporting them. More than 20. Yeah, that's good. That is good. Um, 
But what has happened is for the most part, we aren't able to support many more missionaries and there's still missionaries who need to go, right? There's still places in the world that need to hear. And so I want to challenge you that, that you know, we need to, as we go forward, um, you know, some of these missionaries are getting older, they'll probably retire, that's fine. Um, but we need to think, how can we do more? And, and when it comes to sending money, people have to give money, right? And so and I, I've been trying to bump you in this, this series just to prayerfully consider, say, God, do you want us to give something to missions? You know, we, we give to the church like this now. God, do you want us to give something additional to missions? And, uh, you know, if he puts it on your heart, do it. You know, $1, $5, $50. I doubt there's anybody here who put $500 in a week, but that'd be awesome, right? I mean, um, but you understand what I'm saying? If all of us will say, God, what do you want us to do? If each of us will say that, and then we will make a decision and start doing it, it'll make a big difference. Make a huge difference. And guess what? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be. And, and so now your heart will go towards the mission more. That's a good thing, all right? So let's talk about a couple of action steps here. The first one is this, that, that we need to give missions around the world an ongoing role in our lives. And I just told you one way you can do that. You can be prayerful and giving. But you can also do more. You can actually learn about more, find out what's going on with missionaries and around the world and uh, maybe even go, you know, on a missions trip, which hopefully we'll put one of those together in the near future. Uh, and maybe somebody here, God's going to stir your heart and give you no peace until you actually go as a missionary, right? That could happen. But let's give missions around the world an ongoing role in our lives. It's just part of who we are as Christians. And then the second thing is to live the mission in your own life. Live it in your own life. When you leave here today and go out into the world, live the mission. Be alert, be ready. Not only to live it in front of people, but to speak about it as the Lord provides opportunity, and he will, if you're willing. All right? Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, thank you for your word, and thank you for the challenge. I pray, Father, that we will um, let this great commission that you've given us, Lord, govern our lives, govern every aspect of our lives. And we'll talk more about that next week, Lord. I, but I pray today that we will understand it is still important and it's something that we have to stay focused on or it will not happen. So stir our hearts about these things, Father. And I pray it in Jesus' name, amen.